good to be here this morning, and uh, it's always a privilege to preach the Word and to study the Word. Stuart mentioned that I would share a prayer request this morning, and so I do want to ask that you would keep Michelle in your prayers. Last night, she got a phone call with the news that her dad had passed away, and um, she is grieving that loss. And as a husband and a new father, I'm grieving that loss for her. There's nothing like holding somebody that you love and hearing them say that they miss their dad. So I want to thank you for the support that you've given us so far. And in saying that, I'd like to remind you all, and really remind myself, of two pieces of advice that I always remind myself of what I pray before I preach. Be yourself and forget yourself. Because I do not want you to see anything of me up here this morning. I want to be a conduit that allows God's Word to be seen clearly. So when Brother Stewart and Brother Lane reached out to me last night and they said, Brother Derek, we don't think that you need to preach or we don't want you to feel like you have to preach tomorrow, it felt so important to me that I did preach. Because what I have to say is so much more important than anything that I am experiencing or my family is experiencing this morning. And so my prayer is that we would be united together as we study God's word. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and your mercy and the love that you have shown us. Father, I thank you for the day that you entered triumphantly on a colt into Jerusalem. And I thank you for the, the victory that we have in you. And I thank you for the privilege that you give us to study your word. God, I pray that you would guide this message this morning, that you would give me composure, and that you would... Enlighten us all in regards to the truths that you have for us. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. One of the things that stands out to me as I look at the current cultural circumstances that surround Christianity is that there is an overwhelming sense that Christianity is under attack by our culture and by our society. And I have to agree It's true. Christians live in a world that they don't belong to. With that said, one of the things that stands out is maybe just that we're more reminded day by day of the kingdom that we truly belong to. The world that we live in is not the kingdom of God. It doesn't reflect the kingdom of God, and it makes sense that the values that Christians hold as a people of the kingdom of God stand under attack. 
I say that only to point out that I don't think that's our biggest concern. The reality is that the culture that we live in was never promised to be a culture that was in line with God's word. In fact, the Bible tells us to expect persecution because of the things that we value. To expect long-suffering and trials as a result. More concerning than the cultural war we find ourselves in might in fact be the very issue Paul is writing about in the book of Colossians that we've been studying so far. More concerning than the cultural war that we find ourselves in might be the permeation of false teachings within the church. Since January, we've taken the opportunity to define as a church what our core values are. We've talked about our P-cubed values, prayer, community, unity, the Bible, evangelism, and discipleship. If you're wondering how I remembered that so well, it's an acrostic, P-cubed. Today, I want to talk about the unity amongst the church. Because the reality is, as false teachings permeate God's people, disunity in the church is the real threat that we face. The church is not at risk of any cultural identity war. The church knows who they are, so long as they know who they are. Disunity in the church is the only thing that can cause real damage to the progress the efficiency, the productivity of God's kingdom. Today I want to talk about unity. Unity within the church and the harmony that it fosters isn't just a biblical principle, but it is a practical defense against the permeation of the enemy among us. Unity fosters the ability for us to work together Unity brings about the ability for the church to be in action. Unity enables us to resemble the light and the love that Christ has given to us and ultimately to fulfill the need that a society that does not know Christ desperately needs. We're staying again in the book of Colossians this morning finishing up this series through the core values that we've identified. If you would, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to follow along as I read from our text, which is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. The Bible says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. In this passage, 
Paul and Timothy are writing to the church in Colossae and they've just really gone through everything that they need to do and pushing onward to mature in Christ. And remember, this is in contrast to what the Colossians are being told by Gnostic infiltrators or people who are teaching a false gospel. In teaching this, they tell them to put off the old self. Reminding the church in Colossae that what it means to be a Christian is to identify with Christ in His death. Put off the old self by allowing yourself to be identified in Christ's death. Everything that's in us that was sinful, everything within us that inherited the original sin of Adam, we allow to die. In identifying with Christ, we identify with our own death. A death to sin so that we can put on the new self, which is life in Christ. That is what Paul means by put on. I want to walk this backwards this morning. Because if you notice, Paul offers a list of characteristics that describe what it means to put on this new self. And he says that it can all be summarized by binding it together with love. And after he says that, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I think to really understand all of these characteristics, we have to see what Paul is saying, what he's building up to. And so first this morning, I want to talk about what unity does for the church. The sermon is pretty simple. I have three points and I want to give them to you now. The peace of Christ is our guide. The love of Christ is our drive. And the praise of Christ is our mind. First, let's talk about the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ guides us to understanding and discerning God's will in our lives and in the church. If you have been coming to the Wednesday night services and the Bible studies that we've been having, a few weeks ago what we were studying is how a Christian can understand the will of God in their life. First and foremost, I'll give you the, the short answer to that question A Christian must first be living God's general will for everyone. They need to be saved. They need to surrender to Christ's authority in their lives. And they need to be a member of a church. Second, God has a unique will for every believer. And to understand that, we have to understand the peace that He gives us. The peace that dwells within us. The Bible says, again, Paul writing to the church in Philippi in Philippians 4, 7, Paul tells the Philippian church, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind. And again, the psalmist in Psalm 37 tells us that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our heart. Ultimately, to understand God's will, we have to be seeking the peace that He provides to us. Peace is what guides the Christian into obeying God's will. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful of a false sense of peace, don't we? Jonah, if you remember in the Old Testament, even though he was disobeying God's will, found himself on a ship in the middle of a storm, and somehow was able to sleep. 
There is a false sense of peace. And that's why God gives us the church. Peace for the Christian is not just guided by self, but it is guided by community. That is why Paul doesn't stop at letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, but he says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Drawing us again to this picture of the church coming together, guiding us. It's interesting, the word translated rule in verse 15 is an athletic term. This is the, at least the second time in this letter that Paul has used an athletic term to refer to our spiritual discernment. This time, the peace of Christ is like the umpire that lives inside of us, giving us guidance on whether or not this is right or this is wrong, and not in a moral sense, but whether this is the will of God or this isn't the will of God. A sense of discernment and being able to pursue God's will. I say the peace of Christ is reliant among a community of believers, not just because it takes a multitude to be able to um, guide us in this way and that the unity that we experience is in this way. But the peace of Christ is also what draws us into unity with one another. Here's the reality. I think our church follows the biblical model of the church collectively working together to make decisions. We have monthly business meetings. And they're so much fun. I love them. I get excited every time the second Sunday of the month comes around. We have monthly business meetings, not not just as a formality, but because it's all of us who make decisions. You know, if we look at ecclesiastical or church structures um, that are contemporary, we see a lot of weird things happening. You have churches that have directors and managers. I find none of those, neither of those offices in the Bible, by the way. You have pastors that act like CEOs. You have deacons that act like a board of directors. Again, neither of those match the description of the biblical office of pastor or deacon found in the Bible. But I wonder if churches that pick up on these new structures don't have something going for them. I wonder if they haven't figured out that it's hard to get a community of believers to be united with one another. There's a reason businesses follow hierarchies and structures that go like this. It lets them get more stuff done. They don't have to deal with people having complicated feelings or passions or even opinions because there's somebody where the buck stops who has the authority to make a decision. That isn't the model of the church, though. And ultimately, when I look at that, one of the things that I think of is what's really happening is you have people trying to insert a worldly solution to a problem that God has already solved. Because what's the reason that people become disjointed over silly decisions? 
Church splits have happened over the colors of carpet. What's the reason? It all comes down to sin. And I'm not trying to oversimplify a complicated question. I realize the emotions that we feel are complicated. But it all comes down to sin. There's a root of sin that causes us to be disunited with one another. And the solution is not to insert a worldly solution in adding hierarchies or putting, appointing someone to be in charge. The solution is to bind together all of us with the peace of Christ guiding us that we might be united. Because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And I'm not saying that it's easier to do this. I'm not saying that we'll be more productive whenever we're united together. But what I am saying is that it's the only real solution. Anything else that we try to do to find ourselves united, inserting a worldly solution to an old problem that God has already solved, is a futile struggle. We might get more stuff done, but if we're measuring success the way the Bible tells us to, if we're measuring success by our spiritual maturity, the only real way we will see that is when we seek the peace of Christ to act as the umpire in our conduct with one another. Peace. That we might be united with one another. If we're going to be a church, if we're going to be the church, we must allow the peace of Christ to rule in our lives. It is what makes it possible for us to function as the church, and it is what makes it possible for us to avoid dissension and division in all of the decisions that we have to make. My second point is that the love of Christ is our drive. I've talked about how the peace of Christ is our guide, that it guides our ability to make decisions. But it's the love of Christ that drives us into being able to pursue this peace. The love of Christ drives us not just to one another, but it drives us personally into spiritual maturity. 1 Corinthians 13 is commonly referred to as the love chapter. It's frequently used completely out of context at weddings. But if we look at 1 Corinthians 13 and we look at that context, we will see that the love that Paul is writing to to the Corinthian church is in fact in reference to the spiritual maturity of a Christian. When Paul writes that love does not boast, he's talking about the spiritual maturity of a Christian, that when they have bound together and they've grown up in Christ, that love is overwhelmingly present in their lives. So when he writes, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, do you realize that this is almost a mere image of what we're reading in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12? Look at the parallel. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. And then God's chosen ones we put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
These characteristics of a spiritually mature Christian are all bound together with love. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 13. And in fact, it's exactly what he's saying in our text this morning. Look, after this list of descriptions, he, he says, and above all these, and I'm looking at verse 14, above all these, put on love. And he describes it as binding all of this together. Wrapping all of this together. Holding it all together. Put on love. I shared with you what yesterday was like for me, but man, it's been a tough week for me. On Tuesday, one of my old students passed away in a car accident, and so I went to a funeral of an 18-year-old on Friday. And at that funeral... It was incredible to see the turnout of high school students that showed up. And all of them shared, Brandon loved like nobody else. And my former pastor, Brother Wade, a beautiful message. He made it clear where that love came from. Christ who dwells in us, who is sufficient for all things that we need, binds together all spiritual maturity with love. It is through love that the grace of God is made available to us. And it is through love that the outworking of God is seen in us. Let me say that again. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. It is through love that the grace of God is made available to us. And it is through love that the outworking of God is visible in us. It's the love of Christ sacrificing himself on the cross that makes it possible for us just to experience grace. And it's through our love that the work of Christ in us is visible amongst believers. And not just believers, the rest of the world. The love of Christ drives us into spiritual maturity, but the love of Christ also drives us into flourishing relationships with one another. The picture that Paul is giving us in this letter to the church in Colossae is to take off the old self and to put on the new self. And he describes what the new self would look like. Bound up in love. The love of Christ binds together all of these spiritual hallmarks. And I want to take a moment to look at them. And I don't want to linger too long. If you look, there's a list of seven hallmarks of characteristics of a spiritually mature person. Find a person who has all of these and I'll show you a spiritually mature person. Show me a person who's lacking any of these and I'll show you a person that still has some sanctification to do. Now I said there's a list of seven. I have good news. The last three we can combine into one. So this is actually a list of five. Paul says, put on compassionate hearts. The actual translation of this 
is bowels of mercy. In the Greek context that this was originally written, today we say that you know, the most passionate emotions that we have, they come from the heart. In the Greek context, the most passionate emotions that they had came from the lower digestive system. So the actual translation of compassionate hearts is the bowels of mercy. In other words, the compassion, rather the mercy that we put on comes from the most raw part of us. It isn't something that we put on as a show. And it isn't something that we, we put on for our benefit or maybe somebody else's benefit. But it's something that comes from our heart. Compassion for one another. What's interesting, as we look at this list, there's something that I want to point out, that each of these five items is not just a reflection of how we are to treat one another, but it is a reflection of how God has already treated us. We sang this morning songs that depicted clearly the sinful state that we have. Oh, but that Christ had regarded our helpless estate. A compassionate heart. As He regarded our need. Bound together by love, He showed us mercy. Kindness. Again, Just as God's love towards us in making salvation possible, we are to extend kindness to one another. I'm already at the third one in the list, humility. I think this word might need redefinition. A lot of times when we talk about humility, the idea that comes to mind is That a humble person needs to think less of themselves and be less arrogant. But that is not what is meant by humility in this passage. Humility is not thinking thinking less of yourself. It is rather thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. It's interesting... Again, in the culture that Paul is writing to, especially amongst the Gnostics who were infiltrating the church, humility or thinking of yourself less is not something that was a valued characteristic. In fact, what was more valued in the culture that Paul was writing to was pride and confidence, being secure in yourself and and being able to do all of these things. In fact, I think our American culture values that a little bit too. Maybe not arrogance, but certainly confidence. And Paul writes, be humble. Like our Savior, who came to this world humbly. Today is Palm Sunday, and so we, well, I hope that at home and in your Bible studies, you're recounting the triumphant entry that Jesus had into Jerusalem. The beginning of this week as He entered and the people shouted Hosanna. And He wasn't riding on a white horse. Not yet, anyway. 
is riding on a colt, on a donkey, humble, not thinking less of himself, but thinking of all of the people that he had come to save. Similarly to this contrast that Paul gives the people in Colossae to not think of yourself pridefully as the culture tells you to do, but think of yourself humbly as Christ has already been an example for us to do. In our culture, there's an emphasis on individualism, isn't there? There's an emphasis that I'm an individual person and you need to get to know me that you can't put me in a group. You can't put me in a group of people that are the same age as me, who have experienced the same thing as me. Similarly, the humbleness that we have in thinking of ourselves less is being able to identify ourselves with the community of believers. This culture of individualism is completely against what the Bible teaches us because the Bible teaches us to identify with the church. To identify with a community of believers. Not to think of ourselves, but to see ourselves as a member of the body of Christ. Fourth on our list, meekness. In all of this, there is no weakness in being a part of a bigger community. In fact, meekness doesn't describe weakness at all. In fact, it describes extreme strength under control. And now the last three. I told you there's only five, so we can put all of these together. Patience. The ESV translation says bearing with one another, but another translation might put this in one word and just say forbearance. And forgiveness. Patience and forbearance, again, is this idea. Well, let me say this. Another translation of patience is long-suffering. Long-suffering. What's funny about this is the context is binding together in one body. That long-suffering Many places in the Bible is in reference to the world. In this context, I don't think it is. Long-suffering in this passage is describing the long-suffering that we experience when we're a member of a church because we have to deal with wretched, sinful people who are also members of the church. Did you hear what, you hear what I'm saying? Part of being a church is tough. Because we have to deal with people that aren't perfect. We have to deal with people that get upset about the color of the carpet. Silly. But a spiritually mature person is patient. They let that person be upset about the color of the carpet. And they don't attack back. They allow themselves to endure long suffering because they're patient. Because we realize that the community of believers isn't supposed to be perfect. But I'll tell you one thing it is referred to as the bride of Christ. 
And can I speak from my pastor heart this morning? As I think about my bride crying, I will defend the bride of Christ. She's worth long suffering. The church is worth long suffering. And anyone that wants to say that they can't be a part of the church or they can't deal with the church because it isn't perfect, here's what I have to say this morning. You don't know what you're missing. God gives us beautiful pictures in our life of His relationship with us. Marriage is one of them. When I think about how desperately I want to take away the suffering that Michelle is going through this morning, I know that Christ wants to do the same for His bride. Because He loves us. He's not called us together to be perfect. He has called us together to be united. To be able to bear with one another through long suffering. People want to hold grudges over silly decisions made in business meetings. (laughs) The color of the carpet doesn't matter. The church is called here, we defined our mission statement, to point people to God, to pull people to one another, and to prepare people to be on mission, to equip the saints to be on mission. How are we supposed to do that without spiritual, mature people? The church is here to help people to grow in their spiritual maturity, that we might be able to bear with one another more effectively, and of course, that we might be able to forgive one another the way Christ has already forgiven us. And if you need a better motivation to forgive one another, I don't know what else there is, that Christ has regarded your helpless estate and He has forgiven you. And when people look at the church and they say she isn't perfect, she's flawed, the people aren't perfect, there's something miraculous and a community of believers who are united to one another. Can I tell you something about Michelle's dad really fast? Michelle did not have a relationship with him for 10 years. Her parents got divorced and... and Honestly, her mom poisoned the relationship that she had with him. It's only been about two years that Michelle's been back in contact with her dad. And I can't tell you what an incredible journey it is that's gotten her to that point. 
I remember our first date when we were freshmen in high school. Her dad dropped her off in a black truck, and I was a freshman in high school, so I did not go up to the truck. I stayed at the movie theater, and I waited for Michelle to meet me. By the way, freshman in high school, I could not drive. You should not be dating if you can't drive yourself to the own date. That's why I broke up with her immediately after the date. Anyways, that's a story for another time. I remember when we got married, I asked Michelle, do you want to let your dad know? I know you haven't talked to him in a long time. Do you want to let him know? I feel like it's right. I feel like I should talk to him. And she said, I don't. And I respected what she said. And as Michelle grew in spiritual maturity, this incredible thing, all of this unnecessary resentment that she had, it melted away. She didn't need to forgive him. But as she grew spiritually, she was able to forgive him. There's no better picture of spiritual maturity in a life of a Christian than being able to show mercy to somebody else, to be able to forgive somebody else. I know I have been in need of forgiveness. Ultimately, I know that I stand perpetually in need of forgiveness. We have a Savior who's made that possible. Being a church is not easy. In fact, being an engaged member of a church is difficult. It brings us to spiritual maturity, though, in that it necessitates our spiritual maturity to be effective. Christ calls the church his bride. We are the bride of Christ. As a community, we must love the bride of Christ and every member in it. My third point this morning. Again, I've talked about how the peace of Christ guides us, how the love of Christ drives us. Now I want to talk about the ultimate purpose for all of this, and that is that the praise of Christ is our mind. I find it incredibly remarkable that Paul ends here at the end of verse 15, after saying, let the peace of giving us this list, saying that love binds this list together, he then says, and, and I'm sorry, and then describing the peace that, that guides us, the, the peace that rules in our heart, he ends, he says, and be thankful. Here's what I want to say thankfulness comes from a being in a place of being able to experience the love of Christ, being able to participate in the peace of Christ. The thankfulness that Paul writes about cannot be experienced by a person who finds themselves outside of this peace. The warning written to the church in Colossae is to not fall victim of these false teachers who have fallen in among you, who have discouraged you, who have pulled you down, who have told you that there are other paths to spiritual um, maturity other than Christ. These things are a lie. Here is the real impetus. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart 
And here's why. Because when the Christian finds themselves outside of the peace of Christ, we are silly, feeble people who try to fill that empty peace with something that is not Christ. And we start chasing these other things, and this is how we get distracted. And soon enough, there's disunity amongst us because we've allowed it to take place. There is no true thankfulness experienced by a person who is not truly praising God. To truly worship, we must be truly united. I began this sermon this morning by pointing out that there's a real threat against the church, not in the issue of, cult, of a culture that goes against us, but rather a disunity amongst us. The imperative of God's word is that we would be joined together as the body of Christ in harmony. Ultimately, we must rely on the peace of Christ to be the judge and the umpire in our lives to guide us into this harmony. The peace of Christ is our guide to living the will of God. The love of Christ is our drive in our interactions with one another. And ultimately, the praise of God is what should fill our entire lives. When we find ourselves without the peace of God, our natural tendency is to seek solutions outside of Christ to fill the void of peace. But those outside solutions will never return us to that peace. In fact, they'll draw us further away. When we rely on Christ, that peace will return. When we are guided by that peace, our love for one another will return. And when we're truly living in this way, we can praise God the way that he has called us to praise him. We'll sing a song of invitation this morning. I want to encourage you to respond however the Spirit leads you. And know that I'm here. If you'd like to pray together, I'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to reflect and respond right where you're sitting, please do.